Morning. Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 26, and I'll be reading from verse 36. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And this is God's precious word. Max Licato, in his book, And the Angels Were Silent, writes these words. You may have thought the battle was won on Golgotha. It wasn't. You may have thought the sign of victory is the empty tomb. It isn't. The final battle was won in Gethsemane. And the sign of conquest is Jesus at peace in the olive trees. For it was in the garden that he made his decision. He would rather go through hell for you than go to heaven without you. At Gethsemane, we have this strong contrast between the physical intensity of Jesus in prayer, sweating drips of blood, versus the sleepy, speechless disciples. Peter, James and John, also known as the inner three, were physically close to Jesus, but spiritually distant. There is much we can learn from this passage, a passage about suffering and prayer. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. This morning we pick up from where we left two Sundays ago, with Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. You may recall Peter's bold assertion that he would never desert Jesus under any circumstances. Jesus and his disciples were on the Mount of Olives. Matthew then explains that they moved to a place called Gethsemane, a place, according to John 18.2, that they frequented regularly. It was here at Gethsemane that the battle of the will was fought 
and won. Jesus, in his final moments of freedom here on earth, was mentally and spiritually preparing for what lay ahead. He was wrestling with the psychological burden of what he knew he must endure. Scorn, rejection, the weight of the world's sin, physical pain, torture, separation from his father and death. At Gethsemane, Jesus was fighting the private spiritual battle before he would go and fight the physical battle on the cross in public. Gethsemane means oil press, which seems rather appropriate given the pressure that Jesus came under at this point in time. Just like an olive is squeezed to get the juices and the oil out, so too Jesus' life would be squeezed from him. In this dark scene, we witness the, the raw humanity of Jesus as he expresses his incredibly deep sadness. The weight of the burden he was carrying was immense. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says to his disciples. The sadness Jesus felt was so intense, it was as if he felt it would quite literally kill him. It wasn't simply that Jesus was going to die. As distressing as that would be, it was the kind of death he faced. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It's burden enough carrying our own sins, let alone carrying the burden of sin of all humanity for all time. I can't even begin to imagine what was going on for Jesus at this moment. According to Luke's account of Gethsemane, in the presence of an angel sent to strengthen Jesus, he came under such intense stress that he began to sweat drops of blood. The medical term for this rare but possible symptom is called hematidrosis. And it certainly does make sense that Luke, being a physician, takes note of this and makes comment on its significance. It highlights to us the extreme stress that Jesus was under in this moment. We are all familiar with inner turmoil. And if we are not, then it's only a matter of time because inner turmoil is part of the human experience. It's awful, isn't it? When you're carrying a burden or your heart is grieved or you've experienced some kind of trauma that you feel so depleted, your very soul feels ravaged with pain and uncertainty. You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't function normally. And it's an awful, awful, awful place to be. 
Some of you may even be in that very place now. Whilst our grief and trauma can likewise cause deep sadness in our spirits, this passage is about the grief and the sadness that Jesus was bearing. And not in any way, shape or form to minimise the grief and sadness and trauma that we can experience and encounter in this life. We can't even begin to imagine what Jesus was going through in this moment. We can't relate to Jesus. But what I find so encouraging is that Jesus relates to us. Jesus entered fully into the human experience. He of all people knows and understands what it is to have inner turmoil, to carry a heavy burden. Jesus understands and can relate to deep, unsettling grief. Jesus prays on three separate occasions. Matthew records the first two prayers which are presumably summaries of a much longer dialogue with his father, particularly if he was gone for an hour at a time. The third prayer, according to Matthew, replicates the second and isn't recorded for us for that reason. I'm going to first of all deal with the content and the progression of Jesus' prayers, and then we're going to come back and address the sleeping disciples. In his first prayer, Jesus, recognising that anything is possible for God, pleads with his Father, if there is any way at all, Father, could this cup of suffering be removed from me? Mark's account differs slightly to Matthew's. Let's just look at both of them. Matthew's account, My Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In Matthew's account, we first have the word Abba. There's this sense of a son and a father in this moment. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. You could, Father, if you chose to, you could remove this cup of suffering from me. So take it, Lord. Take it from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In the Old Testament, the cup has associations of suffering and the wrath of God. And clearly the same kind of symbolism is implied here. The cross is Jesus' cup that he is faced with drinking. And humanly speaking, in this moment, he did not want to face up to the task at hand. Who hasn't said to God in so many words, God, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. I see a few heads nodding. The most difficult thing in such a situation, maybe it's crushing inevitability. Something is coming. You know it. And it's awful. And it feels like there's nothing you can do. There's nothing in your control. Have you ever felt like you wanted to escape from your life? 
Perhaps you feel as though uh, there is a train just heading down a track and you're just waiting, you're just biding time and you know that something significant is going to come and railroad your life. It could be the shock you feel when you receive a, a frightening diagnosis from your doctor. Maybe you've had the experience of being laid off with a job and unsure as to how you're going to provide for your family. Maybe your spouse died or a significant relationship ended. You find yourself so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and uncertainty, you just don't know how to function. And you say to yourself, surely this can't be happening. Kind of a nightmare am I living. As I look around the room and I see a lot of grey hair, I can only begin to imagine that many of you have had those moments, have had those experiences. And it's not to say that young people can't either, but certainly the more years of life we have, the more grief we experience. Is that a fair call? Is that a fair call? We live in a broken world, right? We are going to experience brokenness and pain from day one, but the more years we've had, the more brokenness, the more pain and the more suffering we are subject to or we at least, at the very least, witness. Even when confronted with situations that are not life-threatening, we still might say, remove this cup from me, Lord. Long-term suffering can be just as catastrophic as permanent illness or terminal illness. And it can likewise test our faith. Perhaps you're stuck in a miserable job that you hate, but you feel as though you've got no other prospects. There's no room for change. You have to show up day after day and it just feels treacherous. Or you're caring for someone who is living with a chronic illness and you feel as though your, your energy to be able to give is very low, if not empty. Or you receive a, a diagnosis with a medical issue, maybe mental or physical, that is going to mean significant changes to yours and potentially your family's way of life. In each of these cases, and so many more, these are just a few that I've mentioned, we can feel like saying, Lord, remove this cup from me. Do I have to bear this? Worse still, aggravating the situation is a fear of maybe what is coming. And that fear unrattles us and it actually disables us from being able to make sound decisions, from being able to be prayerful as we'd like to be. In Gethsemane, Jesus met the dreadful silence of heaven. There is no reassuring words from heaven in this scene. There is no voice from heaven in this scene that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There is no dove that descends. The Father has spoken. His will has been made known. Jesus must obey. 
Jesus knew that he would suffer and die. He knew that it was his Father's will. He himself had been predicting the imminent events that were about to unfold. From the moment that Peter declared Jesus as the Messiah, on several occasions Jesus began to speak of his imminent torture, death, suffering and resurrection. Uh, a number of weeks ago, we spoke about the transfiguration. You might recall Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his imminent death and the events surrounding it. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He knew that there was nothing that could be done. He knew this was his cup of suffering. He knew that the Father could not remove it, would not remove it. And he is in this agonizing place of waiting. Isn't that awful? When you're waiting, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like if I was given, maybe you have or maybe someone close to you has been given a time frame for how many days you have left and you're waiting. How agonising. Having returned to his disciples to find them sleeping, Jesus goes back to prayer a second time. But his prayer has now shifted. It's changed. There is a greater degree of acceptance in the tone and the words of Jesus' prayer. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, at this point, Jesus has clearly accepted that the suffering that he is to face is indeed the Father's will. And we see that the Father's will is Jesus' primary concern. That the Father's will trumps Jesus' own fears and anxieties about what lies ahead. The will of the Father is so... Uh, it is everything to Jesus. It is everything to Jesus. And clearly Jesus has, humanly speaking, processed his feelings and emotions to a point now where he is accepting of the will of the Father. And the Father appears to have granted Jesus perspective because Jesus knows that millions upon millions of men and women and boy and girls' lives depend on Jesus drinking from this cup in order to be reconciled with God the Father. Just as Jesus himself is reconciled to the Father and enjoys an incredibly intimate relationship and access with the Father that no human has fully understood or known before, Jesus knows that for others to experience what he experiences intimacy, connection, relationship with the Father, he will have to drink the cup that is set before him. When we find ourselves in a place of feeling overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, uncertain of how to continue forward, where do we go? What can we learn from Jesus in the garden? Jesus does not avoid the truth 
of his situation, the hard truth of his situation. He does not ignore the pain he himself is experiencing, nor does he ignore the pain his friends are experiencing, his disciples. If you're ever tempted to hide your struggles or conceal from your loved ones your deepest pain, your deepest struggle, hear the words of Jesus to his inner three, to his closest friends. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. These are not the words of a person who is hiding their feelings. These are the words of a person who is owning their feelings and sharing their feelings that that burden might be lightened somewhat. The disciples, I imagine, were terrified to hear such words. And they may have found themselves deeply grieved as well. You see, Jesus had always been the one in control. Jesus was the Messiah. Imagine what it must have been like for them to see the one who had walked on water, the one who had calmed the fierce storm at sea, the one who had cast out demons, the one who had raised a dead man, to see him so visibly upset and fearful for what lay ahead. That would have had an incredibly unsettling effect on the disciples. Expressing your feelings honestly in troubled times is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of humility and it is a sign of humanity. It is also a way to invite people, close, trusted friends, loved ones, family members, into your life who love you and who want to journey with you. Jesus experienced the full range, the full dynamic of the human experience and he shared that with his friends. For us, expressing sadness and fear allows us to set aside our desire to remain in control. And it's also an invitation to invite others to love and care for us. Having returned to the disciples a second time, only to find them sleeping again, having instructed them earlier to keep watch and pray, he goes back a third and last time for prayer. Matthew informs us that this third time Jesus prayed the same prayer as he did the second time. Perhaps this third time there was a deeper sense of solidifying his commitment to following through with the Father's will, to drinking the cup that was set before him. Too often, and I relate to this, too often we feel obliged to move immediately into yet your will, not mine before we have lingered with our feelings, before we have lingered in that moment of grief and sadness and sorrow and it genuinely expressed that to God. We may feel guilty about asking what we want 
or what we need relief from, as if such prayers were merely complaints. But the honest expression of painful emotions, the honest expression of painful emotions is a process that even Jesus went through. Notice that the first prayer isn't simply, Lord, your will be done. It's, Lord, everything is possible with you. Remove this cup from me. Yet your will be done, not mine. Jesus does not end up in his prayer acknowledging his feelings. He ends up rather trusting in God by conforming to the Father's will at this very, very dark moment in his life. When we find ourselves in a time or season of immense sorrow and inner turmoil and ask, how can I go on? The answer we see from Jesus' example is by being in relationship with Abba. This is what gives Jesus strength and perspective. And it is in the context of a relationship with God where we learn to trust that God will be with us in all that we go through and all that we will suffer. We do not simply grit our teeth, clench our fists and push on having no assistance. Father God is there to assist us and to journey with us. And Father God will bring trusted people into your life to carry the burden and to journey together with you. This is what being part of family is meant to be about, like Pam spoke earlier. As I mentioned at the start, there is this great contrast in Gethsemane between the incredible intense emotion and stress that Jesus is undergoing versus the sleepy, speechless disciples. And I say speechless because in Mark's account, the second time Jesus comes back, he records for us that they were speechless. They didn't know what to say. Now, at this point, it would be so easy for us to take a cheap shot at the disciples. How on earth could they fall asleep? With all that Jesus was going through, the very least they could do was stay awake and pray like he asked them to, right? It would be so easy for us to make that judgment. Firstly, it must be acknowledged that their drowsiness at this crucial moment is due to their failure to realise how crucial this moment really is. We've got the benefit of having the four complete Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. They didn't. Jesus had initially asked them to keep watch. There was no initial instruction to pray. Jesus knew that his betrayer would come. But for now, he wanted protection and privacy to be alone with his father. The first occasion when Jesus returns, he rebukes the disciples for falling asleep and instructs them not to pray for him. He instructs them to pray that they may resist the temptation of the flesh. And in this context, that temptation of the flesh was to fall asleep. Jesus didn't want to feel alone. Whilst Jesus was disappointed to find Peter, James and John asleep, he recognised that their spirits were willing and wanted to do what he had asked. 
but they were not strong enough in their flesh, in their physical selves, their bodies had let them down. The second time he came back, Mark tells us they were sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they didn't know what to say. And I find myself identifying with the disciples here. Jesus needs them. He is in his hour of need. And they are overcome by the weakness of their flesh. It's not that they don't love Jesus. It's not that they don't support his mission or his ministry. I mean, these guys, the inner three, were as close to Jesus as anyone on the face of the earth. And they are indeed with him. They're with him. But they're with him is ineffective. They are tired. They are weak. They are human. They will all go on to do significant ministry, but in this moment, in this moment, when what Jesus needed more than anything else was their active presence, they couldn't manage to keep their eyes open. Jesus' statement about the spirit being willing, but the flesh being weak, indicates that he knows deep down in their hearts, their spirit wants to be awake. Their spirit wants to be prayerful for Jesus. But they are fighting against the physicality of their nature. Nature said sleep. Their stomachs full of food and wine from the Passover meal said sleep. The darkness and cool air of the night said sleep. Their body clocks said sleep. But Jesus had said, stay awake. Saying yes to Jesus will at times require us to say no to things or urges that seem natural and that our physical selves want to give in to. I've heard it said that the church in the West is like a sleeping giant. Have you ever heard that? Apathy has ruled the day. Comfort has ruled the day. Convenience has ruled the day. I wonder if the church is a sleeping giant because it's full of sleepy disciples. People who are with Jesus physically, but distant from Jesus spiritually. That is exactly where the disciples are in this moment. They are physically with Jesus, but they're spiritually asleep. He needed them spiritually awake and engaged in prayer. Can you relate to this? When we are physically with Jesus, our concerns become very inward. They're about our preferences, our comfort, our concerns. We focus on the temporal, on the short term, on the earthly. Our physical condition begins to override our spiritual condition. We become very self-concerned, very self-righteous, and very self-absorbed. I need sleep. The devil loves it when disciples of Christ fall asleep spiritually because we are fooled into thinking that we are being effective, when in reality we are being distracted. Let me repeat that. 
The devil loves it when disciples of Christ fall asleep spiritually because we are fooled into thinking we are being effective when in reality we are being distracted. What would it mean to be spiritually awake with Jesus? Would we not be more concerned for the salvation of lost souls than having perfected our theology of this or that doctrine? Would we not be more concerned about the state of a person's heart and their walk with Jesus than what they wear? Would we not be far more invested in living lives of worship rather than perfecting a worship service that has the right songs that we like to sing? Not exclusively, but would not a person's spiritual health and well-being become our primary concern over physical symptoms or illnesses they may suffer from? We are created as physical and spiritual beings. So it's not that physical doesn't matter. It does, and it is important. However, we need to get the order right. We are first and foremost spiritual beings with physical bodies. And the spiritual needs to override the physical. Far too often, we allow the physical to override the spiritual. The spiritual ought to inform the physical. What tends to happen is we allow the physical to inform the spiritual and fool ourselves into thinking we are engaged with the issues that matter. But we're not. This is a word of conviction to me as a disciple and as a pastor. And I also believe this is a word of conviction for our church. We might be physically present with Jesus. And what I mean by that is you're here. Your bum is in a seat. And so you feel physically present with Jesus. I've come to church. I've come to chat and choose. I've come to youth ministry. I, whatever it is, I'm physically present with Jesus because I've come to be with Jesus. But are we spiritually switched on and engaged in prayer and in ministry that's transformative. This is a deep conviction that I've grown from looking at this passage this week. And I am sitting in a place of great and deep conviction over this, being physically present with Jesus whilst being spiritually asleep. And for heaven's sake, if the Apostle Peter and John and James fell asleep, then who are we kidding to think that we're any different? <laughs> Lord, revive us. Revive your sleeping church, Lord. Wake us up. Move us away from our comfort of physical presence with you, Lord. Enlighten our hearts and our spirits to be spiritually active and engaged and motivated so that your kingdom might come on earth and that your will might be done amongst us here as it is 
in heaven. Glory be to God. Amen.